Bartels, and I'm a reader in international law at the University of Cambridge and a fellow at Trinity Hall. Laurent, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today. We're looking at the post-Brexit options for the UK, combining legal and economic analysis. You spoke recently at the CBR conference. Can you tell us a little bit about how the WTO rules will apply to the UK post-Brexit? Will we need to renegotiate them? Well, I think actually on this point, there's been a little bit of confusion, but there is starting to be some clarity. The important point is that the UK is already an independent WTO member, according to WTO law, which means that it has all normal WTO rights and all normal WTO obligations. The reason that there's been some confusion is that the UK is an EU member state and as such the EU has taken responsibility for the UK's position in the WTO. So when the UK leaves the EU, the UK will have to assume its position, its responsibility for the first time since it joined the EEC in 19, well from WTO terms this began in 1974, GATT in those days. But if one scrapes away the EU level, the UK level is still there and it has always been there. So apart from the UK exercising its rights and taking responsibility for performing its obligations, that bit is new, nothing changes. The rights and the obligations are there today and they will continue to be there after Brexit. It's just that we will see them for the first time. And that presumably the UK will be in charge of them rather than sidelining responsibility to the EU. What are the obligations under WTO rules for the UK? Well, you can essentially divide them into, let's say, three major categories. So one category is institutional, and this is the right to vote, the right to bring cases in dispute settlement proceedings, and and so on. And both of these have been exercised by the EU. So this will be a novelty. The UK will be turning up in court on both sides, I would expect, like any other large member state. And the voting will now be done by the UK. So that's one basket where there will be some changes in practice. The second area is that there are cross-cutting rules. And the cross-cutting rules are rules essentially on non-discrimination and they say that in a variety of different ways a WTO member is not allowed to discriminate against the products and services and intellectual property of other WTO members and all of that just gets essentially copied and pasted according to what I was saying before it doesn't even need to be but formally speaking one needs to have these documents with UK at the top of them but then there's the third category of obligations not rights in this case And that is what are called schedules of concessions in goods, and they're called commitments in services. And these are individual to each WTO member, and they're essentially promises not to protect domestic industry by more than a certain amount. So with goods, you say, we will not impose a customs duty of more than 10% on cars. Or in services, you say, we will allow in foreign banks up to a certain number, and when they're there, we won't discriminate against them. At the moment, the schedules have EU on the top of them, and they are shared between the EU and between all of the EU member states. So it's a, a shared set of schedules of concessions and commitments. When the UK leaves, it will need to establish these schedules for itself. 
and you ask what negotiations will there need to be? Well, there won't need to be negotiations for any types of promises that are obviously specific to the UK. So a 10% tariff on cars at the moment, the UK doesn't apply more than 10% tariff on cars coming into the UK and that will continue. There's no need to change anything there. There are only two areas where there will need to probably, probably be some negotiations, although they are of a different sort from normal negotiations, which is that some of these obligations are described as shared, or not even described as shared, they are described as quantities and the quantities are for the EU. So it's like a house. When you get divorced, you share the house and you need to work out who gets what slice of the house. And it's exactly the same in the WTO. And these are to do with what I call, there are two types. One is tariff rate quota, which is a quota where you say a certain number of products, mainly uh, food, coming into the country will get a lower tariff rate than out-of-quota imports. And that, for the moment, that quantity, like 100,000 tonnes of New Zealand lamb, for instance, is for the EU. So you need to work out what share of that will come to the UK and what share of that will go to the EU27. And the other is the right to subsidise domestic agriculture. And that is also done on an EU basis at the moment. So there's a, there's a fixed amount of dollars per year that the EU can spend on domestic agriculture. And there needs to be a decision on how much of that is now the UK's and how much of that is the EU27. But those two items in economic terms are very small, probably in the, in the very low percents of the total amount of trade that is involved in the WTO. And it doesn't affect all countries. The tariff rate quotas affect 19 countries. And the negotiations, by and large, will be, I would imagine, about the fringes of disagreement. The basic idea of roughly, I mean, it's like, again, with a divorce, you start off from the position of 50-50, and maybe you haggle, you know, 5-10% in one direction or the other. So none of that affects the UK's position in the WTO. You can put it in the basket of a fairly run-of-the-mill trade dispute, really. And those are the sorts of things that take a bit of time, but they're not of any existential importance, really. They're just, you know, that's why you're in the system, really, is to sort this sort of stuff out. And does that relate to what people have been talking about as the most favoured nation principle? Because if the WT rules seem to set out the process for doing trade globally, and so therefore, if those rules apply to the UK on leaving the EU, you can't do one thing with one country that you do with another differently. That's absolutely right. The the most favoured nation obligation is fundamental to your membership of the WTO, which, by the way, covers 164 members. 164 covers the the EU and the EU 28. So sometimes people say you've got to the UK will have to negotiate with 163. It's not true because a huge chunk of those is is the EU. Yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. The most favoured nation obligation says that whatever treatment, whether it's under an obligation or whether you're doing something beyond your obligation, something voluntary like a lower tariff than you are entitled to apply, you cannot discriminate between other WTO members. So everyone gets the same treatment. The exception, the main, there are two exceptions, but there's one that's important now, which is free trade agreements. If you have a free trade agreement or a customs union, you can give better treatment to the other parties to those arrangements than you can to, than you need to, to other WTO members. But otherwise, yeah, most favoured nation means that whatever the UK does, it has to give to all unless there is essentially a free trade agreement or a customs union. Then how will those rules change for the UK post-Brexit? It seems to me, in a way, a fairly simple process yeah. to get to fall back on the WTO rules. And there's been lots of debate about trade agreements, mm. what's going to happen, what will the EU allow us to do when there is a structure in place? 
Yeah, I mean, I think legally nothing changes. In fact, nothing at all changes. I think the UK Nothing has, changes. I think nothing changes. At the moment, in terms of the underlying rules, in terms of the underlying rights and obligations. So at the moment, as I was saying before, I think the... And this is also the government's position, as announced by the Secretary of State for Trade to Parliament in December. The government's position, and I think this is absolutely correct, is that the UK has existing rights and obligations in the WTO. It's just that you don't see them at the moment because it's exercised via the EU. And that's in terms of the WTO. Some, as I was saying, with the tariff rate quotas and the subsidies, it might be a bit difficult to work out exactly what those rights and obligations are in certain very limited cases. But in other cases, nothing really changes except for the formality of coming up with a piece of paper which says the same thing as the existing piece of paper. It's just that it now has United Kingdom at the top instead of European Union at the top. Where things will change a lot is with free trade agreements. And so in a way, it's a bit of a shame that people have spent, not now, of course, but it's a bit of a shame that people spend a lot of energy talking about the UK's position in the WTO. It's important to know what that is. But I actually think it's relatively simple and all of that energy would be better spent talking about free trade agreements where the UK's position is radically different and far more difficult. How would you then settle a dispute? Because perhaps the rules won't be clear because we've got a two-year period where we're in a hiatus because we're in the EU, but we're in the process of withdrawing. Yeah, well, in fact, in terms of the UK's position in trade law, nothing changes until Brexit Day. So there's a lot of... So that's two years hence. That's exactly two years from now. Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of uncertainty about what happens on Brexit Day. And this two-year period, it will be very important for minimizing the uncertainty for saying this is what is going to happen on day X. And we don't know at the moment how that will work because it's up to the EU, essentially. And, and this also affects the WTO a little bit. In terms of the two-year period internationally, nothing changes. It's all about what happens on Brexit Day. And then in the WTO, I think nothing legally really will change. In terms of the free trade agreements, everything will change. And how compatible is it then for the UK to sail off, try to do free trade agreements with India, Saudi Arabia, perhaps, while also working alongside what will be the WTO rules that will apply if we don't reach an agreement? These two levels work relatively well together. I mean, in principle, the WTO doesn't much like free trade agreements. But the reality is that since NAFTA, it all began with NAFTA, essentially, countries have been a domino effect where countries sign one free trade agreement after the other. In fact, the reason for that is that you sign a free trade agreement with country X and then your competitor is no longer getting the same deal with country X that you're getting. So the only way that your competitor can restore the situation is to sign an agreement with country X. And you can see how that quickly spirals because then there's another country that needs market access in your competitor, whereas country X is getting better market access now. So in an effort to equalize the playing field, you get all these free trade agreements. So that's the reality that we have at the moment. The WTO handles that, let's say, more or less okay. It's not perfect. But essentially what this means is that when you have a free trade agreement with another WTO member, for practical purposes you don't refer to WTO law. For practical purposes you tend to refer to your free trade agreement. But even then it's not so simple. So for instance with NAFTA, Canada and the United States have had NAFTA for, what is it, 25 years now, since uh, 1993 and almost 25 years. And for a number of years, even decades, they have 
ignored NAFTA for dispute settlement purposes, and they go to the WTO and essentially just ignore whatever happened in NAFTA. So the two levels operate, let's say, not so much in contradiction with each other, but a little bit in competition with each other sometimes. And people are saying that perhaps we should have a Canada-style agreement, but pointing yeah. out it took years to negotiate. But all of this points to the fact that there are many layers of law yes. that will operate as we Brexit from the EU rather than the European one, than the international laws. Won't that create a lot of business uncertainty, both in the short term, medium and longer term? It's not going to be clear and it won't be clear until courts have decided what rules do apply. There's going to be a huge amount of uncertainty and it's a massive task for this government. So the, the easy thing for this government to do is to pass what is called the Great Repeal Bill, which of course is nothing of the sort, but it is a continuation of EU law and the reason although in the form of UK domestic law. And that needs to be done because you can't have a massive gap in the law. And the important thing about this legislation is not so much that it continues EU law from a Brexit point of view, but rather that subsequently it can be changed. And it's at that point that the UK will really be, if it wants to, gaining control rather than simply continuing with the existing legal regime. But even this doesn't cover everything because a lot of EU law, even if it's incorporated into UK law, refers to other EU law refers to EU institutions, which administrative institutions, which have to make decisions, issue certificates, deal with disputes, all of this. Even incorporating the substance of EU law into UK law won't deal with that problem. You can't simply copy a law from the EU into UK law if that law refers to some obscure agency set up in some other EU member state, if you no longer have any access to that. So the real job for the government at the moment is going to be translating the institutional mechanisms which exist to operate EU law into UK mechanisms to operate what will be EU law but now called UK law. And this is even before talking about how that law then changes later on. So this is a massive job. The government will need to make sure it's got capacity or at least money to buy outside capacity. And while all of this is going on, businesses will not really know what the future holds. And so, nor will the consultancies who are advising them. No, probably not. I mean, one of the striking features of, let's say, knowledge and capacity to handle Brexit in the UK is that there's very little legal knowledge of what is going to happen. There are a lot of people who know about EU law, and that's useful. And a lot of people who know about UK domestic law, and that is useful as well. And I think if that, and the consultancies will be able to access that, and I think that to that extent, the job can be done. But there is still a large gap, because the UK never had to do this, because it was always done out of Brussels, and that is on the raw material of trade law. And there really are very, very few people who understand this, because in this country, no one has had to understand. It really is you know, a handful of academics, a few people in the UK government who have circulated through Brussels and done some time in Geneva and who know this. But even there, by and large, that tends to be in specific sectors. The Treasury knows about finance, DEFRA knows about health and safety and biosecurity, but it's very rare to find people in government or in consultancies or anywhere really, even if this capacity is now slowly being built up, who have an overall picture of what needs to be understood. And just finally, two options. We Brexit the EU and everything goes well, all the rhetoric is put to one side and there is an agreement. Or we Brexit the EU 
and things don't go well. There's no agreement. How do you see those playing out, just briefly? It changes day by day. If you'd asked me this last week, I would have given a 90% plus chance of a hard Brexit without an agreement with the EU. And that's simply because the EU has no incentive to budge on anything. And the UK was being hardline about EU red lines, namely immigration paying into the budget and accepting the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. But two days ago, we have uh, what I think was a remarkable shift in tone from the government, essentially softening the government's position on accepting those EU red lines. And what that means in practice is that in a transitional period, it won't be a transitional arrangement, on my view. It's still unclear, clearly, from the government what will be there. But I think what this means is that any transitional period will be a continuation of EU law until a new set of arrangements can be negotiated. So if that happens, it won't obviously please the hard Brexiteers who want to be out, not paying money, etc. as of Brexit day. But it will soften the blow significantly for everybody else because it will give businesses time to accustom themselves to the new regime. It will give government time to establish the new regime. And all of this has to be done in negotiation with the EU. So my assessment of, let's say, a soft dish transition to whatever comes next has now changed. And I'd probably rate it at about 50 to 50, depending on how the government manages its different streams within its party. The UK falling back on WTO rules is a possibility and it won't be disastrous. Well, disastrous, no. I think the country suffered worse challenges than this, but it is probably, to speak in challenges, the biggest challenge since the war, probably, or maybe the loss of empire. So it's of that dimension. It's huge. It is not so much that there will be tariffs in certain sectors. I mean, Stoke-on-Trent, which has the UK ceramics industry, ironically uh, for them, is going to be the hardest hit because ceramics suffers from the worst tariff. uh, And they voted heavily to Brexit. Yep. Sunderland, one would think, is going to be the same with the car industry, although I'm told by one of the heads of Nissan, which is in Sunderland, that apparently their workers don't actually live in Sunderland. They come in from neighbouring regions, so that might explain the uh, otherwise counterintuitive vote there. But there's a lot of counterintuitivity. You've got the farmers in Cornwall and Wales who no longer get their subsidies. Let's not even talk about the Scots and so on. Or the fisheries. Or the fisheries. I mean, there are a lot of people who are wondering what on earth they did. And frankly, it takes, let's say, a, a generous soul to feel sorry for people who voted against their own interests, even when the information was plainly there for them to read and to see. So for the, these sorts of industries, farmers, cars, ceramics, finance, of course, was well known for a long time. It will be Let's say, not a disaster for all of them. The bankers can all go to Frankfurt and to Dublin and Paris, and they are moving there as we speak. For people who can't move so easily, it's going to be a lot tougher, and the government is going to have less money to be able to soften any of the blows. But this is to do with, say, tariff barriers and other market access barriers. The other effects of Brexit are much more insidious and are going to be harder to spot. And that is that the rules will change and the UK will be in the same position as Australia and as New Zealand and as the United States. And as, well, actually, in terms of developed countries, even this is inaccurate because they are all carving out free trade agreements with the EU. Even the US at some point might revive its talks on TTIP. So it might be more accurate to say that the UK is going to be in the same position as, I don't know, Russia 
Or, I mean, you have to scratch around to find countries with which the EU does not have or is not negotiating agreements. Brazil, something like that. Now, even China, that is difficult, very difficult. And I think there's going to be something of a shock when people realize the small things just in terms of exports to the rest of the EU, the form filling and all of that. If there isn't a replacement agreement, I think you could say maybe not a disaster, but something, let's say, not far short of a very great difficulty, I would say, for a a lot of industries that haven't ever had to think about this before. Lauren Bartels, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series on post-Brexit options for the UK. And thank you very much for answering the last question too. Pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) 